0: This episode of the Ankler Art and Crafts Podcast is sponsored by Universal Pictures Oppenheimer. A staggering global cinematic phenomenon, writer-director Christopher Nolan's epic thriller propels audiences into the paradox of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the enigmatic man who must risk destroying the world in order to save it. Entertainment Weekly, The Atlantic, and New York Magazine have all named Oppenheimer the best film of the year for your consideration in all categories, including best picture. Welcome to the Ankler In Conversation, Art and Crafts the Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up newsletter here at the Ankler. Art and Crafts is a conversation between filmmakers and TV creatives which takes audiences behind the scenes and examines the careers and contributions of the talented artisans who create and craft the movies and series that we love. This podcast is an exploration into their visionary and ingenious minds. Our first episode kicks off with host and production designer Janine Opowal in conversation with Oppenheimer costume designer Ellen Mirojnik and production designer Ruth DeYoung about their magnificent work on the epic film. Enjoy.
1: Thanks for joining me, ladies. For those of you who might need a quick refresher, Some of Ruth's previous credits include Nope, Us, Manchester by the Sea, Twin Peaks. And just a few of Alan's credits are Black Rain, Wall Street, The Nick, Maleficent, Bridgerton, Cinderella. And I want to begin by talking a little bit about how heartened I was, as I'm sure everyone else in the film industry was at the same time, to see the public success of Oppenheimer. Because it's a complex film about a brilliant scientist, who took on what was arguably the most dangerous job in the history of the world, and he spent the rest of his life paying for doing that. Now, I think we've been told that the film is based on a book called American Prometheus, and I'm sorry I wasn't having enough time to read it. But, of course, Prometheus was the god who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans, and for this he was punished sorely. He was chained to a rock, and by day, a vulture would pick out his liver, and at night, the wound would heal, and the next day, the vulture would return, and the process would begin all over again. So Oppenheimer's known as the scientist responsible for the atomic bomb. He's a man known to have been, by turns, emotionally troubled incredibly well-read and culturally aware. And Ruth, I think I saw some references to T. S. Eliot and Picasso tucked in there somewhere. But he was still naive, opaque, egotistical. He was a womanizer, neurotic, theatrical, a communist sympathizer, a political tool, and a martyr. And energy is always crackling around this guy. Terrible but beautiful explosions keep going off inside his head. He was a scientist who brought us the ability to destroy ourselves. And as such, he became Vishnu, the destroyer of the worlds in his Hindu mythology. Now, one thing I'm really curious about, how did each of you find your way into this particular story what were the windows or the doors which you opened to get yourself into it and what were the emotional and intellectual effects on you that come from basically spending having to spend agreeing to spend a long time in bed basically with this kind of guy ruth What can you say about how you did this? How did you get into it? And how did you manage to stay into it?
2: No, it's a very astute point. I had just come off of Nope. And we wrapped on a Tuesday and I started on Wednesday with Chris. And that was the very first day I read the script. So it wasn't as though the story had been sitting with me or that I had months of thinking about the film. It was just an explosion into this next film. Entirely different subject matter than what I had been doing and I think the beginning part of not overthinking what I needed to do was probably the best thing to into this gigantic, monstrous project because the script was 180 pages written in the first person. So I knew immediately Chris wanted all of us as his creatives to design the film through the eyes as though we were Oppenheimer, which I've never, ever read a script in first person ever before. So I immediately knew he was seeing the world, his perception. I just dove headfirst initially and overanalyze anything except I dove right into the research. And because we had the book, It took those two authors 25 years to write that book, scores of research that we were just handed to us. So I worked immediately with imagery. I covered our office walls, two-story house, every single room, floor to ceiling, every scene and moment in time that we could find archival imagery from, documenting all of those events. Chris and I immersed ourselves entirely in it, Ellen when she was brought on, came in immediately and saw all of this. And as one by one people were getting cast and department heads getting hired, they were able to come through. And we surrounded ourselves with the research, with the imagery, and had the script as the Bible. And I think I was completely just captivated by this man and grappling with how it forever changed our world that we know today. And Chris and I were scouting New Mexico and Ukraine, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that was really eerie. We'd flown to New Mexico and we're standing at the base of the Trinity Tower, the real Trinity Test Tower. It was extremely heavy. We didn't talk, Chris and I. And when we got back in the car, I just said, where is this war going to go over there? I mean, because it was at the beginning when everyone's like, well, is this going to be World War III? And they've just felt a responsibility with this project, unlike any other project, too, because it was about very serious subject matter that is affecting in the same way that Japan was affected. It's continued since that moment. It was something bigger than just, oh, so on this film, we're in this period at this time. I can't explain it in words, but I just felt a huge responsibility to make it as pure as I could through showing who this man was in the world he inhabited. That was my goal.
1: I understand that totally and completely, and that's why I asked the question, because it felt like such an intellectual and emotional burden to have to carry just to do the job. Ellen, was your response similar, or did you come at it with a, a similar or a different kind of way? I came at it
3: with a very, very similar point of view. What I was taken by, prior to reading the script, and I listened to a little bit of the book, and what I was struck by was of course the breadth of who this person was, what and how the world was changed. But what was also really very interesting to me, because sometimes I go on a bit of a psychological hunt, I just can't help it, I do a deep dive to try to understand someone or understand the background or understand the meaning of all things, is that I try to understand, he was introduced To Vishnu at 30 years old. And he took on the mantle at 41 years old. It's a life's journey. I went into the layer of mythology coupled with psychology of how one actually journeys through life and what their purpose is. And I always did believe very, very strongly that at the moment he was introduced to the Gita by Jean it made an imprint on his being, his soul came alive and it did take that amount of time to actually actualize his main purpose. But from reading the material and understanding the enormity of this project, and yes, it's emotional consequence continually throughout the course of it, I always felt too that there was a very, very deep responsibility that we had in portraying this and also in actualizing Chris's vision and how he saw the film. And clearly he wrote it in the first person. So we were were actually going to understand this film through Oppenheimer's eyes. So it was very, very important to really understand and get totally washed in the research first. But what fascinated me most is that I kind of really felt Oppenheimer was channeled through Chris from the get-go. That fission and fusion was absolutely his main theme in life. And this was the perfect opportunity to actually actualize it with everyone watching.
1: So you guys, in a way, were responsible for taking in and channeling this character and putting it out In the form of costumes and sets. And this is often an instinctual process and it's a personal process. This is not a, the director said, I wanted the wall red and we did that. And that's something I wanted to get at just a little, just a little bit, because I I find that's one of the most interesting aspects of the job is to just allow yourself to be the conduit. I mean, many artists say crazy things like, you know, well, I was just channeling such and so. But to actually hear that designers and the film business do the same thing is very interesting, I think. And I wanted to do one one other thing to move on just a little bit. As they say on the NPR economics program, <laughs> now let's do some numbers. <laughs> oh. Now, Ellen. Yes, how many characters did you actually have to dress for the film? You are working on an incredible assembly of some of the best actors of the time. Gary Oldman, Casey Affleck, Matt Damon, Tom Conti, Kenneth Branagh, Alden Ehrenreich, Robert Downey Jr., Killian Murphy, Florence Pugh, Emily Blunt. And I have to say that I noticed that each character has his or her special fabric, sweaters, ties, colors, textures, pattern. It wasn't just a sea of a boring collection of 40s and 50s gray, blue, black suits. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jenny. (laughs) Abbey was wearing a special Southwest American, Native American belt buckle as a symbol, an icon of who he was and his relationship with this landscape that he had basically chosen for this project. So let's hear a little bit more about the numbers,
3: shall we? Well, it is pretty staggering. There were 78 characters, talking characters. We did over a thousand costumes for the population of the film on many different periods. We covered 45 years. We had a1,000 costumes, and the principal collection of how much was manufactured was between 100 and 300 pieces of, of suiting fabric. Shirtings were was about 300 in total in terms of the principles only. So the principals only, because we had the principal cast, we had the the supporting cast, and we had the scientists. Our supporting cast, that was the ensemble that we always were surrounded by at some point or another and during different periods. We had very little time to manufacture, and we had very little money. So what we had to do was outside of Killian Oppenheimer and outside of Straws Downey, we had to figure out a way in which to manufacture in a very quick and efficient method so that we could fit into the budget. The budget was very small. We did not have a lot of money. It was down to the bone. It was down mm-hmm. to the last cent. We had no extravagance, no extra fat at all on any anything. But what we had to do was make sure we could cover different time periods, different situations, and different ages of each one of those 78 speaking parts. It was an interesting quest that we were on because we had all of these periods that we had to address. However, what Chris was interested in was absolute authenticity and reality, but he also wanted an original spin on it and he also wanted it to actually be accessible to a modern audience. So what that means is that he didn't want, and had said very, very clearly, I don't want a stylized film, I do not want a precious film. But coming from the first person, this is one number that is a single number, being that it was a first-person film coming from Oppenheimer, no one in the film was to wear a hat with the exception of Oppenheimer. Now, that was a bit shocking to me. It was really, really shocking to me. I I can't lie about that. That was like, oh, (laughs) we're going to do this period film and one hat.
1: Only one guy Mm. gets one hat. One guy
3: gets one hat, (laughs) which means that hair and makeup had to be precise. Oh, yeah. Okay. To not take you out. And in doing so, it took me a, a moment to actually get inside Oppenheimer's head to see in my frame what he would see and if it would take him out of the frame, if he did see somebody in a hat. But there was one person he had to see in a hat, and that was Einstein. That was the only other hat. Uh But that was just one hat. So the numbers were large. The money was small. Hmm. The building was very big. And then just assembling as much as we possibly could from... Whatever the source was, that we could find anything. We just we're, were treasure hunters, like digging, 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 not only for fabrication manufacturers, yeah. but clothing that did exist or things that did exist.
1: That sounds like a lot of work. I got tired watching and thinking, oh my God. <laughs> At what point would you be bored? A lot of coffee. <laughs> So, uh, Ruth, your job is to create the environmental reality of the film, and so that means kind of in a way you're responsible for everything the actors get in front of, everything they drive through, everything they sit on, everything they walk around and talk inside of, and so when you broke down the script, continuing our numbers theme here, how many sets did you have, and in the end... How many locations did you have to find in order to satisfy those requirements? And talk a little bit about your special challenges of finding the right locations and integrating those locations into the places which we know had to be built. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about
2: that. What are your numbers? We were approximately 150 sets. We were across four states, over a hundred locations. When you read the scope of this, it was really scary in the beginning because we had a lean budget, but scale was so important. And even hearing her speak on how she tackled wardrobe, you know, you're you're each in the weeds with your own issues and whatever those issues are. Of how am I going to do this? How am I going to pull it off? How is it truly going to? be at the scale. And and Chris was in the trenches with us, which that is how we pulled it off. I mean, he was there from day one. I've never met a director who knows what every single department does and comes through budgets and problem solves. And similarly to Ellen going on treasure hunts, we were shopping at Home Depot for sheds to put in the deep background at Chris's suggestion in order to get that budget where it needed to go and build entirety of los alamos chris and i dove in from the beginning to find los alamos that plateau that place he wanted that to be a build from the ground up in its entirety and initially we set out and we scouted utah and new mexico and had feelers out in montana and colorado it didn't really matter the state it mattered the epicness of north south east west the vista being up on this plateau we could not go to the actual los alamos because it's so modernized um Main Street's got a few Starbucks. And Chris had gone to see the actual Los Alamos, Bathtub Row and the boys' school and Oppie's house. And he said, You know, I'm really not interested in filming there, but you should definitely go see it at some point. But let's carry on and find our Los Alamos. And so that was in the back of my mind that I needed to go see it. But I also, with him immediately saying, We need to find our ground up 360, uh, that's the very first thing we tackled. And we immediately put a plan together. And I started a white model, just a quarter scale white model of the entire town. Jonas Kirk was our construction coordinator. He started to throw numbers to that. Those numbers were just not the reality of our film whatsoever. So Chris and I were looking at our, what I call, monopoly table of buildings of, okay, which one's going? And it was then I decided to go visit Los Alamos and utilize the fact that we should take all of these epic interiors. A lot of what was driving the cost for our ground up build 360 was Complete interiors, complete exteriors. So if we have complete exteriors 360, every single building, let's utilize these found locations that are period perfect and do a full dress. So instead of two weeks shoot out at our ranch, we are a six-day shoot at our ranch. It's where we opened. We did the 20s in California and then moved to New Mexico for the next six weeks or so, and it was a treasure hunt similar to. Ellen's treasure hunt. And what Chris tasked me with immediately was if we stay in New Mexico longer than two weeks, the other ground up build we had was all of Trinity, the Trinity base camp towers, bunkers. He goes, find me Washington, D.C. and New Mexico. And I remember being in Santa Fe, looking out at a sea of adobe houses going, all the states I have to find D.C. and New Mexico. I just said, I mean, Atlanta, I just was like, you're serious. He goes, yeah, I'm serious. So We started that treasure hunt, we found it, and it saved the film a lot of money. But another extraordinary thing Chris did, I mean, I think the original schedule Ellen we had was 85, 90 days, and and Chris said, I need to go do some homework, and he came back to us and said, I'm going to shoot this in 55 days. (laughs) I have never had a director give up days. That's almost unheard of. And I remember walking back into the art department like, How in the heck do we get our budget into this box that doesn't exist? I remember Ellen being like, Chris, I can't do it. It's not going to (laughs) happen. That's
3: what I said. I said, I can't do it. I can't lie. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. And he
2: came back to us and said that. And I literally walked into the art department and looked at the entire team. And I said, we are shooting this film in 55 days. And they went, what? And I said, you know what that means? That means cash money. It just was so incredible i'm like we have a teammate we are in this and everybody is giving because we all needed the script pages to be as big as they were yes and we couldn't just cobble this thing together and be like well here's los alamos and you got a couple buildings over there You're, you're right if you're gonna do something you need to
1: do that part of it well yes and you need to figure out what to edit yes what to leave out And what's important to hold on to. And this often demands a lot more energy from the directors than the directors like to give.
0: This episode of the Ankler Art and Crafts podcast is sponsored by Universal Pictures Oppenheimer. A staggering global cinematic phenomenon, writer-director Christopher Nolan's epic thriller propels audiences into the paradox of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the enigmatic man who must risk destroying the world in order to save it. Entertainment Weekly, The Atlantic, and New York Magazine have all named Oppenheimer the best film of the year for your consideration in all categories, including best picture.
1: I'm also really curious about how you two cross-pollinated with each other because often I find The designer is off in the field, chasing the rabbits into the bushes and constructing the sets and overseeing, finding the locations. And the costume designer is in where the actors are, where the fabrics are, where the costume rental departments are. So how did you guys uh, coordinate your conversations? I mean, I'm sure it was a lot more than, well, I've got to have a red wall here. So Ellen, please don't bring in the actress with a red dress, (laughs) you know?
3: Well, I think that in the beginning, what was really quite wonderful is what Ruth described in the very, very beginning when Ruth started, she lined a house filled with research, scene by scene, section by section. And it was so complete that words were not, I mean, it was just a visual feast. It's a
1: visual storyboard of the story, basically.
3: Yes, and it was really, really clear And although we were trying to absorb it all at breakneck speed because of the amount, not because of anything, but the amount that had to be accomplished, what was great about walking into this environment was the extent of what was in front of you, in front of you, on the side of you, in back of you. And it was totally immersive. So being that it was totally immersive and that was the work that Ruth and her department established first, that I had the great luxury of walking through on day one, it was a hundred questions on the walls, you know, and it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And you could walk through all of those environments with Ruth and whatever her key points were, she would say, and you could walk through it with Chris. And whatever he really focused on, for example, one of the things that he focused on was the way Straws looked in the Senate and the tie that he had. And these were mm-hmm. all
1: black and white images. Yeah. There were no color images. That brings up something else that I think is really important that okay. I personally need to talk about a little bit. The film cross cuts between Oppenheimer's life, the hearing for his security clearance, and the political confirmation hearing of Louis Strauss, who's one of his principal detractors. And it also cuts back and forth between black and white, some scenes black and white and some in color. Now, I'm guessing you knew ahead of time that some of this was going to go on, Mm -hmm. although maybe you didn't know exactly how it was going to be cut together and which parts of which scenes were going to be black and white and which parts were going to be color. But I I know from deep, dark, personal experience how difficult it is to design for a film that is both in black and white and color. So can you guys talk a little bit about how you were able to distinguish that and make it work seamlessly? Because black and white requires thinking about pattern and contrast in a way that color does not. Well, in
3: all of our worlds, things had to be done to be able to work in all worlds. In both, yes. In both worlds. So the world of black and white that some people in working in black and white would have to use, whether it be different colors to represent different tonalities and so on, different contrasts, that's not what I did. That's not what Ruth did. I actually looked at fabrications and actually looked at the choosing the fabrications that I really believed would be scripted as black and white, because whatever was scripted was going to be in black and white. Whatever was in color was going to be in color. I would look at fabric and I would look at tone and look at shirtings and actually just look at it on the black and white filter on my iPhone. That was mm-hmm. the best I could do. In that time and it actually worked it's a great tool <laughs> it, it was a great tool and it actually worked because all of those choices
2: needed to be in color and in black and white the amazing thing was he we had the bible chris scripted exactly from the first script we read what was color what was black and white and the scenes where it was color and black and white so as ellen said you couldn't use crazy shades to get these, this tonality in black and white because right. immediately he's going to come in with color film and shoot. So it all had to be period accurate and correct. And... And then those were the gray shades. It was exactly of that time period because all of those locations and those men, it's not like they were throwing crazy colors up on the wall. They're in Washington, D.C. They're at the Capitol. They're wearing a yellow tie and a white shirt. And then click, it's black and white. And so so we did the exact same thing. There was an effort that I know that others have to
1: do. Other than being purists. Other than being right about it. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's something else that I've thought about a lot with this film the film seems to be basically about a lot of tension, different kinds of tensions and different kinds of complexities and contradictions. And But one thing that I noted with both the costume design and the production design was there was a simplicity. It In the midst of all this complexity, you guys managed to find the simplicity. I know that You know, people often say that, oh, well, the spare approach is due to constraints of budgets and schedules. But it was more than that. I I felt like there was a desire, not just a necessity, to find the simplest way to tell the story. In mathematical terms, what you'd say was Okay, we need to reduce the equation to the simplest possible terms. We can't be here expanding the equation to all of the details. And you know, it's this is the kind of design that's totally about the story and nothing about the self. And this kind of design looks effortless on some level and it looks natural, naturalistic and you end up feeling that what you're doing is designing yourself into anonymity because it looks like someplace or a film that your aunt would think, oh, well, I mean, I thought the director just put the actors in the room and then brought in the camera and filmed it as it was. And that's something that's always very interesting to me because when a film like this is well done, it looks like you did nothing. And it's shocking and it's sort of difficult to talk about, but I'm hoping that, Ruth, you can go first and Ellen can go second. We can talk a little bit about this designing yourself into anonymity business because I I personally, I like to hide inside my work and uh, there are other designers who are much better at stepping out in front of the work and making a thing about it, but I guess I'm sort of basically sort of... Shy and I like to hide. Uh, what do you guys feel about that?
2: Absolutely. It was a goal, and early conversations Chris and I had of wanting this film to be very pure. And I say that by meaning less was going to be more for us in that to tell this story, and the goal was to transport the audience to this exact time and place without being contrived with the sets. And as Ellen will speak about, the wardrobe. We wanted it to feel as though they had stepped off the street, come into the theater, and almost could have walked back out thinking they were in 1945, because our goal was not to fill each frame with screaming the year or the period, and it was something we were in constant dialogue with. From the very beginning to the very end of wanting minimalism and modernity to tell the story, there was a natural authenticity. Back then, you just didn't have as much stuff, first of all. So, we have this idea of you go to these antique stores and you see all these time period booths set up, and you're like, look at all these tchotchkes. But that's not, it was like this side chair. It wasn't like, and the side table, and the lamp, and the throw. So we wanted to take away all the visual noise and really almost as though it was a dream paint all of these worlds he was walking through during this time period. I don't know if I'm explaining it well. I think the reality is to do that, you have to be an incredible editor and we would dress the set and then we would peel back and then Chris would come onto the set. And it's just, we were just constantly taking away and wanting the actors and their space and two or three objects to tell the whole story. And that's all we needed. You didn't need all this stuff. And I think we approached the entire film that way. It has a
1: consistency. The whole style and design of the film has a consistency that is really palpable. You really feel that it was a serious set of decisions that everyone had to make to just kind of strip out and do the most with the least. Mm. And it wasn't just because there was no money, that may have been part of it, but it was because that was the aesthetic required of the story somehow. I mean, what do you think, Alan?
3: I think that that's absolutely so. I think stripping away is a great way to look at the whole process because in the world of the costumes, for example, there was a definite need because of the way the story would be told. There had to be a way in which each period flowed between cuts. There could be never a jump. There could never be a moment where you're taken out of the frame and taken out of the story by thinking, oh, what year is that? What year is that supposed to be? There would never be a place card saying what year we're in the story was unfolding. I had not worked with Chris before, but from watching his films, understanding that he does rip apart a story and put it back together in the way he wants to tell it, I was tasked with actually deconstructing each period and finding the essence of each period so that everybody could flow from one period to another period without the audience jumping and saying, where am I? That he could tell the story exactly like the script, or he could decide to make changes in the editing room. But each one of the choices that were made were made so that there was a distinction of the period, but in the most minimal way, but that these men and women could float from one period to another period without any confusion of any sort. So that reconstructing each period for our language was very important. What were the pieces that we would keep? What were the silhouettes we would keep? What was the fit that we were going to keep? What were the colorations, etc. Down the line, it was. About that deconstruction and really extracting the essence of each period so that it would seamlessly tell the story as the story unfolds, whichever way, as an end result, Chris wanted to tell it. I think it was a more beautiful freeing process myself. There's no visual noise. I mean, I've worked on films where there's lots of visual noise. This was quite the opposite. There was nothing, it was as if we were painting a painting that would hang in the Met and you'd go visit it 30 years
1: from now and it wouldn't feel dated. It would feel timeless. The whole film has a mid-century modern, mid-20th century modern kind of costume, tone, coloring, feeling to it. Mm -hmm. And you know, whereas many things today are about visual, more visual complexity, as you said back then, things, there were fewer things to choose from and there was more simplicity. It was easier to kind of see your way through all this stuff in a way. I mean, do you guys have anything else to add to that? I know that this naturalistic kind of design is is not always understood. yeah. Because it's in a way it's understated, and maybe we've come you know so many decades away from mid-20th century that we don't find ourselves able to sneak back there as easily mm. as we once were able to. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but
2: no, it all, it all has to be made, and I think there's a misconception that because it is so understated and it's, it's just it feels like, oh, they just went to this place, and there was Los Alamos, and Ellen just. I just went and got those clothes went to Western costumes and they were just there and it all of it has to be constructed and built and Los Alamos rose from the dirt and so did Trinity and so did the White House and so did all of the interiors and like you said, I mean, it's so getting so hard. The other directive Chris had, which we haven't even brought up, but in the very beginning, I am not doing CGI. I am not doing paint outs. I'm not doing replacement there's no set extensions so i go into these buildings and there's fire extinguishers and cameras and every modern thing that people put in governmental buildings or their own personal homes or whatever we were using that i had to come up with incredibly creative ways in camera hiding
1: them right erasing them (laughs) <laughs> she couldn't erase it. No, but you have to erase it by putting something over it so it would disappear by itself and no one would notice.
2: <laughs> I got into this game with Chris because he walked into Strauss's hearing room and we were a, f- a couple of weeks into filming at that point. And he goes, Ruth. I'm seeing your boxes everywhere. Your boxes are just <laughs> staring at me. He goes, you need to turn them into something. And I'm thinking, I have to turn everything into something. And he's like, think about hardware. Great. And so we like got into this whole, like, how do you make this thing a weird soffit with some kind of weird grate? So I sent some art directors to the hardware store. I go, get every piece of the weirdest metal that could be something so that Chris doesn't see that box. Yeah. He just sees something to an anyways. Something that looks like it
1: belongs <laughs> You know, I mean, Ruth, there's one other set slash location I wanted to ask about because it's almost like it had a physical effect on me, and I think it had the same effect on other people. The psychology of the security clearance hearing room Whew. um, it was almost a closet. It was so cramped, and yet it had the feeling of being almost accidental. And the horrors of being the person required to testify with your back to the door yeah, was really unnerving and unsettling. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that series of decisions and what happened once you brought that well-upholstered black beast of a couch into the background?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That room took on a life of its own. When I broke down the script in the very, very beginning, Chris and I were not interested in going... To a back lot, and pretty much not interested in even stepping foot on a stage. But I said, Chris, if there's one set that's gonna be on stage, it's gonna be room 2022. You're there for three weeks, four weeks with these actors. We should build it. The walls can fly, whatever you want, it can be whatever. And we had the manuscripts from the entire three week. So I, we read the entire manuscript. So I knew exactly whose legal teams were sitting in what chairs, exactly how the tables were configured. It described no photographs. It described the tea. So we mimicked all of that. I also knew it took place in a World War II temp building that U.S. government threw those up on the lawn in D.C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. Yeah, for overflow. And so I knew the style of the building. There was a couple life images of him exiting, almost like paparazzi photos Mm. of him exiting with his lawyer team. So I I drew it up immediately and was like, Chris, here's room 2022, roughly dimensions. And it was long and narrow as it was described. And as we were scouting our location, folks took us to this really cool, weird location I had never been to in um, Alhambra alhambra yeah and we went to the braun headquarters braun like the german the um, shaving, shaving company, company. Mm-hmm. from the 60s had erected this campus then that was virtually empty with a couple businesses renting but it was this perfectly period intact mid-century back lot and I'm like what are all those buildings over there they're like oh they're all condemned the police department does tests through them and Oh, but those are great for us. <laughs> Condemned buildings. We love them. We go over there and Chris is immediately. We just, Chris and I beelined it like diagonally. He's like, well, where are you going? We weren't going to look at those. I was like, that's exactly what that's we want to look like. That's so we where just... you want to go.
1: Wherever somebody <laughs> tells you not to go is where you should go.
2: <laughs> so we walked in and Chris is like, room 2022. I don't even remember the dims off the top of my head. It is so small. Barely the cast and the IMAX camera and Chris fit in it. Barely. Barely. They
3: had to walk sideways into it to
2: get in. And it was so narrow. And I scouted it with Chris. He goes, this is our room. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. Not because I didn't think it was correct. And I went back and I, I took rough dims real quick. And I showed the art director, And they're like, they're going to shoot the whole scene for three weeks in this? I didn't say anything to any of the department heads. Well, you
1: don't have to be there. It's those other guys that have to suffer. <laughs>
2: But I, I remember going, the faces are going to be priceless on the tech scout. <laughs> and Hoyt is like, oh, Chris is so excited about this room. I was like, he's really excited about this room. Wait till you see it. <laughs> it was brilliant. And they walked in and Key Grip, Gaffer they're just like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> what are we, this is... There was this great photograph that I think our onset took. Steve Gerke, our script supervisor, pretty much the whole crew hung out outside when the filming was happening. Only Chris and Hoyta were inside. I think the focus puller had to be like behind. It was nuts, and I think Chris loved that. But that was the genius of what he does. He goes, Straw set this whole thing up. It was meant to completely demean and minimize and annihilate Oppenheimer. It should have been in a formal hearing room, similar to Strauss's. And it was in the crappiest room. In a closet. Yeah, (laughs) it was a closet. It was a it was a broom closet, basically. And then he staged the sofa behind so that the person who was going to testify next sitting behind you, the eyes like burning into the back of your neck and the whole thing, incredibly demeaning. And I think this. It goes back to your point about less is more. It's like it wasn't even about money at this point in the film. If anything, having money on this film would have, I think, been a detriment. You know, oh, well, we can just go to D.C. and shoot D.C. And we can go here and shoot. What I'm trying to say is Room 2022 was an exact example of a method of thinking that produced the film that we have all gone to say several times. And the impact that that room had and it had on you and it's had on Numerous people. I get that asked that question often and it's a very simple room for all intents and purposes, you know, but the emotional impact that has in the entire film, I think what Ellen and I were trying to do, that the entire cast would be empowered and Chris to to absolutely do their best work. Of course. You know, the thing
1: about the costume design and production design is that we come first in many levels, and we are responsible for setting the bar below which no one else should be ever allowed to slip. And that's a big responsibility. It's not just responsibility for costumes or for backgrounds. It's responsibility toward everyone else making the movie, and
3: it's heavy it's It's a heavy responsibility, but I think that what is really kind of um wonderful collaborating with chris is i I have to say, I haven't collaborated with a director in in this way in many many, many years with many many directors. I've worked with a lot of good ones we all have, but there is nobody like chris nolan he collaborates he does collaborate, number one. It really is a real word, and he's present continually. And you know that he's the leader and a partner at the same time, and you know that you're all working for the, the single purpose. And, you know, the beautiful seamlessness of this entire film and Room 2022, what it represents is if you think about the the largeness of this film, of everything that was going on, the content, the emotional content of this mm-hmm. story. Of <laughs> for the world. For the world. What is in his head? What is in every single scientist that comes into play? What is in their head? They are going to be the men who change the world. Okay, there's so much going on aside from the personal lives and everything, all of the notes that the story hits. It is such a massive, epic, beautiful, it's a masterpiece of a story, I think, that if we did it in any other way, with stuff, with extra stuff that other period films potentially, or films, generally speaking, have to dress it up or make it a louder visual noise it wouldn't have worked it just would mm. not have worked and i think that what aside from the work the actual work work that we do on a day-to-day basis to create this is that what we always hold very near and dear is what is the bigger picture
1: what is the emotional content what's the takeaway what's the takeaway I know the the one image that I will never forget as well is this long shot of the two bombs in their boxes on the back of the vehicle leaving the town and starting that long trip through the desert. And you and I and everyone else watching the movie knows where they're going. We all know what's going to happen as a result of it. And, you know, you sit there and you think, oh, my God, is there a way we can all possibly restrain ourselves the next time? That was, in a way, a visceral response that I had to the film. And I don't know if you guys had a similar visceral response, but... Maybe it's time we should finish it up and talk about that for a second and anything else you might have to say.
3: The first time I saw the film was finished. It was finished and I saw it in IMAX. And Janine, all I could tell you is that I cried the entire film, continually. I did find that the IMAX experience was such an intimate, as opposed to what people think only in IMAX in terms of large vistas and epic grandeur and so on and so forth, which we had. We also had an intimacy that was unlike anything that I think has been put on film. And I think that what we watched or what we experienced was an experience of watching something that felt extremely original. It was, I think, a masterpiece. And I think that there was an originality to telling this story that people knew the story. You know, we all know what the story was, but mm-hmm. they didn't right. know this story. And I think that we managed to contribute to telling a story in a very original way by possibly creating the essence of what this world's portrait was. I always felt that it was a portrait, not a biopic. It was a time piece, not a period piece. And that's what it felt like as I watched the first time I saw it because everything fell together seamlessly. I didn't watch the costumes per se at all. Right. I didn't. I just watched the story and how it affected me. And um I really couldn't I couldn't talk about it for a bunch of weeks, really. It really deeply
1: affected me. I can easily imagine that because I mean, as I said, my response to seeing those bombs walking off because I had just visited Hiroshima a few months before and it was so fresh. Mm. The wounds are still with all of us. With all of us. You know. And I can understand why Mr. Oppenheimer was who he was. Thank you guys very, very much. I know you've been very busy and you're going to continue to be very busy. And it's always a pleasure to sit and talk with other people who do something very similar to what you do for a living, because we learn from each other and we excite each other and we contribute a lot to each other's welfare and state of mind. (laughs) Thank you guys. All right. I hope I'll see you later. Hope so. A total pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye.
0: That's all for today's episode. Subscribe to Art and Crafts wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And make sure to sign up for The Ankler at theankler.com and follow us on the socials at The Ankler for more updates on upcoming episodes of Art and Crafts, as well as our newsletters and podcasts, including The Ankler and Martini Shot.